Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From the pages of The New Yorker, this is the weekly comment podcast. In Last Exit to Brexit, Amy Davidson Sorkin writes about the magical thinking around Brexit. The lexicon of Brexit, the United Kingdom's buffoonishly mismanaged effort to leave the European Union, includes technical terms such as backstop and customs union, as well as a fanciful but revealing one, unicorn. It has come to be a scornful shorthand for all that the Brexiteers promised voters in the June 2016 referendum and cannot, now or ever, deliver. An EU official referring to what he saw as the UK's irrational negotiation schemes told the Financial Times that the unicorn industry has been very busy. Anti-Brexit protesters have taken to wearing unicorn costumes. A lot of people who advocated Brexit have been chasing unicorns now for a very long time. Leo Varadkar, the Prime Minister of Ireland, said last week in Washington, D.C., where he attended St. Patrick's Day celebrations. His visit coincided with a series of votes in Parliament that were meant to clarify the plans for Brexit, but which did nothing of the kind. Instead, the next two weeks will test how deeply a nation can immerse itself in self-delusion. As a matter of European and UK law, Brexit is set to happen on March 29th. Members of the EU are frustrated because even though they have spent two years negotiating a withdrawal agreement with Prime Minister Theresa May, Parliament has rejected it twice, most recently last Tuesday, which means that there is a risk of a chaotic, off-the-cliff, no-Brexit deal without determining new rules for trade, travel, or such basic matters as driver's licenses. On Wednesday, Parliament passed a motion saying that it didn't want a no-deal Brexit, but in an absurdity within an absurdity, didn't legally change the deadline. On Thursday, May got Parliament's approval to ask the EU for an extension. Seven of her own cabinet members voted against her. But all of the other 27 cabinet member states must approve it, and several have said they will not do so unless the UK comes up with an actual plan for what it will do with the added time. And should the extension be short or long enough to allow a real reconsideration of whether Brexit is even worth doing? The mood of many European leaders was captured by Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, who said that he didn't see the point of just allowing the UK to keep whining on for months. The reasons for the MP's opposition to May's deal are myriad, but they tend to concern the Irish border, which is why Varadkar has become a central figure in Brexit. The UK wants a harder border with EU countries than the one that exists, but it also wants to maintain its current open border between Northern Ireland, seen as an inseparable part of the UK, and Ireland. Otherwise, it can't fully uphold its commitments under the 1998 Good Friday Peace Agreement, which put an end to the violent period known as the Troubles. Until that conundrum is resolved, May's deal would keep the UK tied to the EU. This is the backstop, and it enrages Brexiteers, who insist that the border can be dealt with by inventing new technology. Faradkar called this notion a faith in magical solutions. There has been a failure among Brexiteers to see how Ireland has thrived as part of the EU, with the principle of free movement of people and goods fortifying the peace agreement 
and Dublin's emergence as a business center, the EU's ideals of shared peace and prosperity have been realized there in a distinct way. At this point, Varadkar, who is 40, gay, and the son of a doctor from Mumbai and a nurse from County Waterford, has more clout in Brussels than May does. In Northern Ireland, Brexit has revived calls for independence. The same is true in Scotland. Both voted against Brexit. There is also a sense of betrayal among many young Britons, who grew up with the expectation that they could study, work, and build families across the continent, and now find that future being thrown away for the sake of national nostalgia. There is a growing public campaign for a second referendum, backed by an assortment of Remain-supporting MPs. Brexit has fractured the two main parties. Many Tories feel that they no longer have an ideological home. Labour has been further divided by charges of anti-Semitism in its ranks. Labour's official policy is now to support Brexit, if not May's deal, but the first priority of its leader, Jeremy Corbyn, appears to be to force a general election that would make him prime minister. In February, he indicated that he would back a new referendum. Last week, though, when Parliament finally had a chance to vote on an amendment calling for one, he instructed his MPs to abstain. The amendment was defeated, but its advocates haven't given up. Indeed, MPs voted no last week on every measure that suggested a specific way forward, apart from delay. They even voted against giving themselves more power to put solutions to a vote. They're headed for more votes, including yet another one on May's deal. Marina Hyde of The Guardian wrote that the story of Brexit is one of politicians finding out in real time what the thing they had already done actually meant, then deferring the admission or even the acceptance of it. These words should resonate for Americans. The Brexit debate has been marked by particular British eccentricities, but the tendencies it appeals to, xenophobia, the belief in a lost past greatness, cross many borders. The adherents of such movements may see the floundering of Brexit as a reason to rethink their assumptions, or, more dangerously, as proof that elites are conspiring against them. The populist dream subsists in an increasingly troubled sleep. Donald Trump has called Brexit a great victory. Appearing last week with Varadkar, however, he denied that he had supported it. All he had done, he said, was to predict that it would win. He recalled the moment. I was standing out on Turnbury, his Scottish golf resort, and we had a press conference, and people were screaming. That was the day before. In fact, Trump arrived the day after the referendum. He might as truthfully have said that he saw a unicorn on the Turnbury fairway. He conceded that Brexit has gone badly, but he didn't think that there should be a second referendum. It would be very unfair to the people that won. They'd say, what do you mean? You're going to take another vote? But, as Trump will soon be reminded, that's how democracy works. You don't face voters just once, but again and again, as they come to see what your promises amount to. And sometimes, the second answer is very different. That was Last Exit to Brexit by Amy Davidson Sorkin from The New Yorker magazine, March 25, 2019. Narrated by Jamie Rennell. Also in the magazine this week, Alexandra Schwartz on the novelist Miriam Taves, Catherine Schultz on her father's love of books, 
Ed Caesar on the Brexit backer Aaron Banks, Joshua Rothman on the painter Peter Sachs, Carrie Baton on Mike Levy's Hyperion, Hua Su on Lauren Berlant and The Effective Turn, Alex Ross on Thomas Addis and John Adams, Hilton Alls on Kiss Me, Kate, and Be More Chill, Anthony Lane on Hotel Mumbai and Ash is Purest White, fiction by Lore Siegel, and more. Audible.com produces a weekly audio edition of The New Yorker. To subscribe or to download individual issues, we invite you to go to www.audible.com and enter New Yorker in the search box. To subscribe to the comment podcast, go to www.newyorker.com or to the New Yorker room on the iTunes store. From PR.